What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today we have a Q&A episode, and I'm I'm just like cracking myself up a little bit. Um, I was having a cup of coffee just now, and just like kind of browsing some of the questions. And I just, as I finished like the first three of them, I like chugged the rest of my coffee because I was like, man, I'm gonna need it for some of these questions. Just that they're good questions, and they're 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 thoughtful questions, and they're questions about programming and and training, and and certainly things that I think are gonna require some nuance. Um, and so I just I just kind of chuckled to myself before I hit record here, and I was like, I'm gonna need the rest of this coffee stat. And so let's jump into it. I'll probably get through as many of these as I can. I can imagine I'm gonna tangent on quite a few of these, uh, but good question. So good, good job, guys. So thank you for everybody who asked a question. And um, you know, if you're if you enjoy these Q and A podcasts, that's awesome. I appreciate that you are listening. So the first question, I'm not gonna read names. First question says, new mezzo. There's only one tricep exercise, and it's optional. And I understand where you're coming from. You're thinking, well. When it comes to the amount of volume I would need to grow a muscle, there's a miscon or there's a conception, there's an understanding that it is, let's say, X. Uh, whether that's you know somebody who might say something like five to ten or ten to twenty or you know ten to fifteen or whatever it is, um, and, and I'll cut right to the chase. I think that there's a platform potentially that's uh, for a better answer here. Um, I first will direct you to a podcast that I did with Brian Borstein. Uh, I think it's my latest episode. It might be one episode back where we talk about. Uh, this idea of how much work you need to grow a muscle. Basically, it's a big discussion on volume. Uh, we are having the discussion within the context of a minimalist approach, meaning like what is what are our current thoughts on how little you could do and still make gains? Um, and so I think that that will be quite enlightening. I would absolutely go listen to that, especially if you have a question like this. The second thought that I have is that you're actually doing a ton of triceps in this program. We have, we have three pressing movements in this program. Um, I think there's an overhead press, a flat press, and a costal press. And all of those, depending on which group you're in, you might have a slightly different iteration of that. Um, but just understand that in those pressing movements, you are getting a lot of triceps. And, and I'm not gonna be the person who says you don't need to do any direct arm work, but there are people out there who would say that. And what I mean is that those people would say, you're gonna get so much indirect work for biceps with all of your pulling movements and indirect work for your triceps I say indirect basically because maybe it's not the primary point of the, the exercise. Let's say you're doing a push-up or an overhead press, but you're gonna get a ton of triceps doing those movements and you have quite a bit of them. So if you're like, well, there's only one triceps exercise, there's really like, depending on how you calculate volume, you're already doing like 12. If you do that set of triceps, you're probably doing like 12 sets of bice, uh, triceps per week, depending on how you're quantifying volume. And if that idea of like how to quantify volume is sounds obscure and ambiguous. I would go listen to that podcast with Brian and I. I think go through it you know, way too in, de in depth, but uh, if that's something you're interested, definitely. So yes, I think that the idea that, we're, like if we're looking at um, how to get the most bang for your buck, how to be the most efficient with your time in the gym, I'm gonna be using a little bit more compound lifts, lifts where you, well, let's say you do a push-up, right? You're gonna get some pec volume, some front delt volume, and some tricep volume. And I, I wouldn't just say some as if it's like a little bit, I mean like a significant amount. Um, and so we're gonna lean a little bit less heavily on isolation movements for the biceps and triceps, and a little bit more heavily on compound lifts that are gonna hit the biceps and triceps, I would say, quote, indirectly, but you know they are also directly working on the load, so not really the best word. Um, and so if you, are thinking to yourself, well, I'd like to, my arms are really important to me, I'd really like them to grow optimally, then I think I would do that tricep exercise. On top of that, when we look at our upper body volume in this program, make no mistake about it, most of my following is women. Now, I am i don't wanna make too big of a generalization here. Um, usually what that means is we don't do as much pec volume, that's about it. That's really like mostly how the program skews. Um, usually there's optional work if you wanna get a little bit more pec work, sometimes it's optional arm work, but I skew our volume as far as upper body a little bit more towards back and delts because that's generally the feedback that I've gotten from um, from my my following that that would be primarily the things they'd be interested in growing. But we grow everything. This is a very balanced program. We skew the upper body volume a little bit towards back and delts. But when we do that, we end up doing a decent amount of pressing and a decent amount of pulling and we do get a lot of bicep and tricep work. So at the end of the day, like if you really like tricep work, I mean, that that's like a weird like, we could kind of talk about why you like tricep work, but if your triceps are like a primary goal for you, I would do that that tricep exercise in there that is an optional addition and make sure that that I understand I'm probably getting a lot of tricep work in a lot of this pressing movements. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Obviously, going further and modifying the program even more specifically for you is not something I can do in this exact moment. Obviously, that's more of like a one-on-one coaching thing. Um, but yeah, I just think that there's that misconception of like, well, I'm not, I need to be doing 10 to 20 sets of triceps because that's what I've heard grows muscle. When in fact, like by the way that, yeah, not to go too deep into that podcast, but the 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 study that gave us this 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week metric, by their count, you would be doing about 12 sets of triceps. If you did, let's say, nine sets of pressing and three sets of triceps, that would be about 12 sets of triceps as per their quantifying strategy, let's say. Um, and so I just I just think of that as like, you know, and again, if you guys don't follow my friend Brian, go follow him. He's actually doing an experiment right now where he is only training one of his arms, biceps and triceps, for six months. And the other arm is gonna do all the other, the other arm is going to be doing all of the other compound lifts, but not any of the bicep and tricep work. And we're just, he's just taking a look at this idea of like, do I get enough volume in my compound lifts that it doesn't really make a whole big of a difference if I train my biceps and triceps directly? Um, and so, you know, whatever, go check out his page. I'm sure he'll be talking about it a little bit more. I knew that I'd go out on a, on a tangent here. We're only one question in, we'll see. Question number two, I injured my foot, I'm in hypertrophies. Can you talk about working around injury? Should I just do what lower body I can and do upper body? So I'm sorry you hurt your foot. I I hurt my ankle, I like understand this, this conundrum that you're in. Um, you said, should I just do what I can in terms of lower body and then do upper body? As far as group programming, first of all, I know who's asking this question. I love you to death. Uh, and you know, if you were a one-on-one coaching client, you would you would, like not just for me, but for anybody. Let's say if you were working one-on-one with a coach, then you could get a little bit more of a personalized approach where you're like, hey, let's really like try and identify all of the lower body work that you can do, and we hammer it. And so I'll try and give you a, a general idea of what we'd be looking to do. It's not super complicated. I would take the lower body exercises that exist out in the world, all of them. And I would say, which ones can I do? Maybe it's leg extension, ham curl, adductor machine, abductor machine. Maybe it's, um, I injured my foot. Uh, maybe it's a 45 degree hip extension. Maybe you can do those four or five exercises. I would do those four or five exercises, whether it's all on one day, which then you could maybe just go to three days of training per week. And I would hammer them and I would train them hard. You know, whether it's all the way to failure all the time, I would skew closer to the failure side of things. Uh, and I would work those, I'd be like, hey, these are the things I can do with no pain and I can push hard with no downside, so I will. So <clears throat> I might go ahead and look and, and I'll list those again because I do think that they might be strongly worth considering. 45 degree hip extension, leg extension, hamstring curl variations, could be multiple of those. Um, adductor machine, the abductor machine, which is like the kicking your feet in and out or bending or pushing the legs out in and out. Um, I was gonna say the good girl, bad girl machine. Cause that's one of my, that's one of my in-person clients used to call it that. Um, yeah, you can do all of those. Uh, anything else that comes to mind? I mean, you could maybe even train hip flexors. Um, but I would find the exercises that you can do and you can push hard without pain. And I would just lean heavily on those. And then I would do upper body normal. You know, again, you could even, if you really wanted to keep four days of training, you could even like experiment with like trying to survive more upper body training. I don't love that idea because I do program the volume for upper with the ex expectation that this is all you're doing. So there's like, we're doing like partial rep match and we're doing like some really hard close to and beyond failure work. But you could say, well, what, you know, as per the previous question, you could be like, well, maybe I could survive another exercise for biceps and triceps. And maybe I'll put that on a, on a fourth day. And maybe I have a more of an upper body focused cycle this time around. That might be an idea. Next question. Everything that is supposed to hit bum, I only feel on my hams. RDLs, bridges, 45 degree hip extensions, help. So I, I know who asked this question. We talked about it a little bit and the number one thing you need to do is take a look at your technique and make sure that it all makes sense for solving this problem. So when I think about this, I think about your RDLs and I think make sure your RDLs have a significant amount of knee bend. I've seen some of your RDLs. I know that you can do these with a really stiff leg with very little knee bend. That's gonna hit a lot of hamstring. And so if you want to hit more glutes, have more knee bend. Number two, when we're talking about things like bridges, I'm gonna answer more generally. I've seen your technique, so I know that some of these might not apply, but if you're doing bridges and you're feeling it only in your hamstrings, your feet might be too far away. Maybe pull the feet back under your knees a little bit for a more vertical shin. Um, and then 45 degree hip extensions, 45 degree hip extensions are a lot of hamstrings too. Like that's not just a glute exercise. It is totally a 
and not to oversimplify it, but let's say the bottom 50% of the movement is lengthened hamstrings. As you cross over gravity, glutes will take over and you get, I say cross over gravity, let's say cross over like your body being uh, parallel with the floor, glutes take over into that top position. And so let's say it's lengthened hams at the bottom, shortened glutes at the top. So what you can do is you can, if you really like, like if you really wanted to get more glutes, which I think is up for debate, I think sometimes being that specific and, and instead of like, training the hip extension, like the hip extensors all together and, and um, being a little bit less, yeah, let me back off that. I think it's fine. If you want to get more glutes out of your hip extension, what you can do is you can cut the range of motion short on the way down. What I mean is if I just said that the bottom half is, is more length than hamstring, you could just not go to the bottom half and you could stick to that top portion of the rep where you're, it's way more glute dominant. And, and I think that's a totally fine idea. I'm not saying that with like a bunch of red flags. I think that's a totally fine idea. Uh, you could do that hip extension with like 50% of the range of motion that you normally do. And I guarantee you the glutes are gonna do a whole lot more work. Very generally to close that question up, I think a lot of it comes down to two things, two, two general thoughts. One is make sure that you're looking at your technique, make sure that it biomechanically matches up with what you're looking to get out of it. And number two, there's some element of once you've done that, some element of, I, I don't know how much I believe this, but there's some element of like letting the chips fall where they may. like. If you do a really great bent knee RDL and you don't get in, you, you feel a lot of hamstrings, like, yeah, do you have to just keep pushing on and doing that anyway? I guess you don't. I guess you could at some point decide, hey, RDL is not a good movement for me. I'm going to stick to like more bent knee options, more lower body pressing, more leg pressing, more lunging split squats, because maybe that takes the hamstring out a little bit. It would. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think make sure it makes biomechanical sense. And then on some level, maybe just consider if your hamstrings are so fucking weak that you actually would like them to get stronger. Uh, I know like strictly aesthetically, you might have a preference, but like maybe just like this is such a weak point for you that like structurally or functionally, like this might be a good idea. Um, so that might just be a thought I would at least consider. Next question. Have you considered an optional fifth day for abs in the program? I'm loving it or I'm new and I'm loving it so far. First of all, I'm so happy you're loving it. Seriously, the group program is like the most fun thing I've I've done in, you know, in my training career. I'm having a blast with it. I'm always so impressed with with people going in there and um upgrading their training is the way I would phrase it. Like taking a chance to learn some new things for the betterment for the long term. And when I say upgrade their training, I don't mean like training longer and like getting more optimal gains. I, I do mean getting more better gains, but I mean getting more efficient gains. I mean figuring out a way to get better gains in less time so they can be more consistent and have more time for other things. That's really what our group is about. Our group is not, a, if you are like a, first of all, if you're a pro bodybuilder, you could come in the group, I think you'll make amazing gains. But if your entire life was about getting the absolute best gains, no matter what the cost, this might not be the group. Like I am certainly focused on efficiency. I, we are not doing 90 minutes in the gym. We're not doing two hours in the gym. We're just not doing that. Even if that would give you 5% get better gains, that's not what we're about. I wanna get the best gains in roughly that like 45 to 75 minute mark. So have I considered if an optional fifth day for abs? I have not, or sorry, I, I have absolutely considered a lot of like optional fifth day or like optional this. Um, and it just, it comes down to, a couple of things. One is that I don't, I don't like the idea of putting optional work like on a fifth day um, because, first of all, generally speaking, I don't love the idea of putting an optional fifth day just because of the psychology behind it. Some people are not going to be able to do it. They're going to feel like they're missing out on something. That it, there's a psychology behind there's an option for me to do something and I'm not able to do it. There's a negative association there. I don't want that for people. I don't want people to be like, "Wow, I can't really do this fifth day." Which, by the way, going from four days of training to five days knocks a high percentage of people off the list in terms of being able to be consistent with that. The same way going from three days to four days knocks you know a high percentage of people off that. Um, can you do an optional fifth? Can you do a fifth day of abs? Absolutely. Am I going to specifically program it? I'm not. Um, but you're more than welcome to do that. I think like abs, calves, cardio is all kind of on your plate. Um, also because I think it's a little bit less interesting from a programming perspective. Uh, there's maybe like four in my opinion, maybe like four ab exercises worth doing. Maybe it's like hanging knee raises, uh, a cable crunch, um, maybe a cable crunch for a slight oblique uh, emphasis, but even that feels like really like uh, over, um, slightly over complicating it and, and a stimulus that I don't think is super great. I think a really good, like a TVA crunch, 
uh, can be solid. And I think something like a gar hammer can be really great, but it would be like those four, it would be those four exercises. Again, not all on one day, by the way, you probably would fucking die doing that. Maybe two of those, let's say. Um, it'd be those on repeat. And I just think it would get a little bit boring. It's, it's not as, um, there's not as much room for spicing it up in my opinion. Yeah, so those are my thoughts. I think it's fine if you do it though. I, you have my full support if you wanna do it. Um, generally, when it comes to ab training, I think that there's, um, I think that there's, I just, I think it would be, I'd be remiss if I didn't discuss very generally my stance on ab training. I think ab training is fine. You could totally do it. Um, but I think similar to our discussion on triceps in, in the first question, I think you'll get a decent amount of indirect core work just by lifting heavy. Uh, and when I say lifting heavy, I just mean lifting hard. I mean, going close to failure with a lot of exercises, compound lifts, even even exercises that are high, have a high degree of stability for hypertrophy, like still are gonna work your core to some degree. Um, but yeah, split squats, RDLs, a lot of lower body work, uh, bridging, like, I'm not saying I'm against core work. I'm just saying, if you wanna do it, I, I'm, 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 you're very welcome to do it on your own, but it's, it's probably something where you can check the quote functional box of like having a functionally strong core, like a strong enough core for your life just by lifting hard and trying to get stronger with compound lifts. If you want to go the extra mile and have like the strongest core possible or the best, most aesthetic six pack that you can get. Yeah, you probably wanna train it directly, but I think as far as keeping things as efficient as possible, this isn't necessarily where I would, uh, it wouldn't make the cut for a, 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 a program that's highly focused on time efficiency. Let's leave it at that for now. Next question. I'm finding it so complicated to navigate RIR and progression. Is taking sets close to failure enough? So I'll tell you, I'm not sure if you're in my program or not. This is maybe just a more of a general question, but if you're in my program, I hope that you will find this rhetoric in the program because I make sure to emphasize it quite a bit. And, he, and here is that rhetoric, is that we use RIR in week one. In week one, I give you an RIR value. For those of you guys who don't know, RIR means reps in reserve, and it is a way to quantify how close you get to failure. If I say, hey, you're gonna do a set of bicep curls, eight to 10 reps with an RIR of two, that means you're gonna stop your set when you could do two more reps, when you are two reps shy of failure. And so she's saying she's having trouble <clears throat> navigating that, meaning like having trouble exactly knowing where where she is in terms of RIR, which I 100% get. Like, how do you know you're exactly two reps away? You don't. And so again, this rhetoric is should be permeated throughout the entire program because I, this is something I'm very passionate about, is that we are only using RIR in week one. That's it. When you guys show up for week one next week, even this week, we'll talk about intro week in a second. When you guys show up on week one, I might say, hey, we're gonna do three sets of RDL, with a three, two, one RIR. I mean, your first rep, your first set is a three RIR, second rep is a, second set is a two, third set is a one. That kind of spe specific numbers roughly translates to this sentence, which I promise you is in the program. Choose a weight and perform an amount of reps that's pretty hard. So make your first set pretty hard, but not all the way to failure. And then try and match those reps across the next two sets. And that's all I want you to do. In week one, I want you to grab a weight, do an amount of reps, do a set that's pretty hard, right? I know that that's subjective, but I think everyone can do a pretty hard set. And I say that in particular because it is, I, I don't need it to be so specific. I need it to be pretty hard. In, and let's say you're, okay, I did 100 pounds for eight reps, that was pretty hard. Then I'm telling you, do eight and eight for your next two sets. That's pretty straightforward, right? You don't need to, that's not overcomplicated. 100 pounds, eight reps, that was pretty hard. Put the bar down, rest two minutes. Then do eight and eight for your next two sets. Match those reps on the next two sets. From there, week to week, we do not use RIR again. And so when you're like, hey, I'm finding it complicated to navigate progression, I'm calling bullshit on that. I'm not trying to be a dick, but I'm calling bullshit on that. You did 100 pounds for eight, eight, and eight. If you are getting tripped up with progression, it's because somebody's overcomplicating it for you. You just need to try and do a little bit more than that next time whether that's going for 100 pounds for nine and nine and nine, or 105 pounds for eight, eight and eight, right? Going Either going up a little bit in reps or a little bit in load. It is does not need to be any more complicated than that. <clears throat> you might do 100 pounds for eight, eight, and then add one rep on your final set, eight, eight, nine. That's amazing. And in my program, you will hear it articulated as such. It will say, try to add a rep to at least one or all sets, or try to add a little bit of load and match last week's reps. And so that's extremely straightforward in my opinion. 
Um, and it's way more straightforward than trying to recalibrate RIR week to week. Ah, oh, last week was a three two one. This week's a two week zero two one zero. This week's a three two one zero. I don't need you recalibrating load uh, RIR week to week. I need you in week one getting pretty close, training pretty hard. Right, hard, but not all the way to failure. Again, all of this rhetoric is in the program. Make sure you're reading the exercise descriptions. And then after that, when you show up for week two, it's gonna say, hey, look at what you did for week one, try and do a smidge more. That's literally it. And do that for five weeks in a row, deload, start again. And if so the one thing that I will meet you halfway on is if you're struggling in week one to get that three, two, one RIR perfect, because in week one, I am telling you to look at that RIR. And so my advice again would be to just read the little blurb under it. I don't need it to be perfect. I need you to train hard, but but not not to failure. And that might be exactly what I say. Hey, make this day, these three sets, make them hard, but I don't want you to take any of them to failure. And so if you're if you're putting more stress on yourself to make it more perfect than that, then in some way that's on you. I don't want you to do that. I want it to be general. Once you get generally in the ballpark of that week one value of hard, but not insanely hard, just focus on progression week to week, which, uh, you know, there are gonna be a lot of people with like a lot of different progression models. The truth is there is no optimal progression model. There's only your ability to conceptualize it. And what I mean is like, if someone's like, hey, like there was just a study that came out where they compared, uh, you know, going up primarily with reps week to week or going up primarily with load week to week. And the results, the, the two groups scored basically exactly the same. And so figuring out a load, a progression model that really works for you, and not to beat in, beat this dead horse even more, but in the program, I will teach you what's called double progression, which is an option for you, which means let's take that same example. Let's say I say you're gonna do RDLs for eight to 12 reps, three sets. Double progression would state that you wanna use that weight that you chose in week one. Let's say you did 888 in week one. Stick with that weight until you are maxing the reps across all the sets. So until you're doing, you know, it's eight to 12 reps. So until you're doing 12, 12, 12, you're gonna stick with this weight until you're doing 12, 12, 12. And once you're doing 12, 12, 12, then you're gonna go up and wait and you're gonna start climbing the reps back up again. That is called double progression. And it's an amazingly simplistic way to look at progression, which, and I say simplistically not condescending towards it. It's an amazing progression model, but it's amazing because of how digestible it is. Max out the reps across all the sets and then go up and load. And so if I give you eight to 10 reps, then you're gonna stick with the, whatever load you started with until you're doing 10, 10, 10, then you're gonna go up by the smallest increment available. Again, that rhetoric in the program, I promise. Um, if you're getting tripped up with RAR and progression, it's because you're trying to be too perfect with it. In week one, get in the ballpark of pretty hard, but probably not failure training. And then from there, look at what you did last week and you can adopt double progression where you're like, hey, I'm gonna add reps until I'm at the top of the rep range. Then I'm gonna add the smallest increment of load that's available. Maybe it's two and a half, like a small two and a half plate on each side. Maybe it's going up to the next set of dumbbells. Maybe it's going down one pin on the cable stack. And then I'm gonna work my way back up in reps. That's my little spiel on that. But if you are in the program, come to the Zooms and let's talk about it. Like, you're not the only one who's struggling with this. I mean, I have uh, content in the FAQ. I have content that should be received via people. You know, if you're new to the program, I just started a little email chain that starts when you join the program that goes through the five most asked questions that I get. One of them is, hey, I'm new to RIR. How do I think about this stuff? And then within the program itself, I talk about progression and RIR in the exercise description a ton. So make sure you're consuming that content if it's really something you wanna get better at. Ironically, the getting better at it part will probably come from a combination of stop be trying to be so perfect with it, just focus on progression and the occasional intentional failure set, which we have within the program as well. Next question, why should I start at two to three RIR at the beginning of the mezzo? Can't I just do failure on the last set? There, listen, uh, there are so many ways to skin the hypertrophy cat here. So if you wanted to start your mesocycle with a two one zero, where you're taking the last set to failure, I think first of all, sometimes some of our exercises will start with a two one zero. Let's be totally clear. I'll answer this very generally because you're like, hey, why can't, you know, can I, it's basically like saying like, can I have rice or can I have pasta? It's like, they're the same basically, you know, uh, this is just like, of course you can have either. They're very interchangeable or, or at least that there's like very many roads that lead to the same place. And so very generally what you're asking is why should I start 
my mezzo at two to three RAR. I don't, I don't need, think you need to start at two to three RAR. And, and I don't want to make this question because I have an entire podcast on this topic that I will link. Again, it's with my friend Brian. And we talk about different ways of structuring progression across a mesocycle. And this is the this is exactly that topic. So pl- I'm going to save a little bit of that answer. Please go listen to that podcast. I think you are going to love it. Um, but one of the main takeaways is that there, there are many ways to like skin this hypertrophy cat. There are many ways to begin your mesocycle and progress throughout it. There are many logical ways that are logically sound, but they are contextual. You know, they depend on how much total volume you're doing. They depend on the exercise you're doing. Is that an RDL or is that a leg extension? You might start an RDL a little further from failure because of how lengthened overloaded it is. You might start a leg extension a little closer to failure because of, you know, the fact that it's a single joint movement that trains the quads mostly you know, uh, it overloads them in the length or in the shortened position. So you might go a little bit closer to failure for that. Um, and so it's contextual and I hate to, I hate to go that route, but maybe I can give some like very general help here. You want to start your mezzo a little bit further from failure, right? So in not at failure, not you you don't go in week one failure on three straight sets. You could, by the way, which is funny because you could, if you, you were doing very low volumes, you probably could. But you want to start generally with training that's hard, but not too hard. You do that because presumably you are coming off of a deload. If you're coming off of a deload, then you've gone through a little bit of a resensitization process. And what that means is by you've almost like detrained a little bit. It's like taking a break from caffeine. You've resensitized to caffeine. So guess what you do when you reintroduce caffeine? You don't need as much to get the same effect. And so if you're coming off of a deload, you don't need as hard or as much stimulus to get a really nice optimal gains. And so you can do two to three RIR, let's say on everything, and you can get really great gains. And what you've now done is you've now set yourself up in the beginning of your program when you're in a resensitized or technically like a desensitized state or resensitized state, you're gonna get really great gains in that week one without killing yourself. And you've left some room for yourself to progress the stimulus upward week to week. Now, you, you the reason you've left that room is because as you become like as you have more caffeine, right? Which basically is saying as you train more, you'll need that stimulus to keep going up. As you have more caffeine, you'll need more caffeine. But if you start with fucking a quadruple espresso, then you might more you might more quickly see yourself one in the beginning, it's going to be way too much, right? I mean, this analogy works perfectly. If you if you if you quit caffeine for a month and then you start with a 400 milligram dose, at that moment, it's going to be too much, more than you need. And if you stay with that 400 milligram dose in three weeks from now, it's gonna be something that doesn't stimulate you very much, let's say. And so what you've done is kind of the worst of both worlds where like you started with way too much that was suboptimal, that was counterproductive. And then you've also not had any room for an uptick because let's say more than 400 milligrams is you know generally not the best idea for, for health. Um, and so we do the same thing with our training. When we need less, we give less. And as we need more, we give more but it's hard to give more if you start with all out balls to the wall training. All right, yeah, these have been some long questions. What are we at, 28 minutes? I usually like to keep these in that like 40 minute range. So let's see how it goes. We'll get through a bit more. Maybe I'll finish these on Instagram because there's a lot more. Um, do you count short position exercises, i.e. glute bridge into your weekly volume? Absolutely. Again, if you are interested in this sort of question of like how do we quantify volume, please look in the show notes or my episode with Brian about this kind of, the title will be something to do with minimalist training, but basically it's a big discussion on how we quantify volume and how much volume we actually need. And so this question is asking, because the glute bridge is an exercise that overloads the glutes in the short position, we know that that is both a little bit less stimulative for hypertrophy and a little bit less damaging from a recovery perspective. And so she's saying, he or she, sorry, are we counting that into weekly volume? Not to be not to be a dick. Of course, you count everything into your weekly volume. You might not count everything equally, right? And I think if you listen to that podcast, you might actually understand the fact that you might not want to be trying to quantify this so directly at all. Like the the actual pursuit of trying to precisely calculate weekly volume in terms of numbers is really difficult to do and and involves acknowledging a lot of variables that that go into affecting that. Again, one of which is the one that you are clearly aware of, which is like 
shortened possession. Like, does a set of glute bridge give you the same stimulus as a set of RDLs? It doesn't. A set of RDLs will give you more stimulus because it's more challenging in the length of position. It will also come with more fatigue. And so how do we reconcile those differences when it comes to quantifying weekly volume? We might not try and quantify weekly volumes or at least do it so specifically. Um, so I would definitely go listen to that podcast. You'll find it uh, quite helpful, I believe. Next question, is it safe to take creatine for more than five years? I keep seeing up to five years pop up. You are, I'm not just gonna be very direct. You are following the wrong people if that is the information. Like, I'm just not trying to be like, oh, follow me, nobody else. I don't give a shit about that. But we have 30 year studies on creatine that have shown it is incredibly safe. Also, do people not fucking understand that you eat creatine when you eat animal products? All of your animal proteins have creatine in it. That is the natural source of creatine in our diet. This is not a supplement that you're taking that you don't get elsewhere, right? This is not a supplement that you're taking that you're like, well, I'm taking something now that I wasn't getting before. You're just having a little bit more of it. You're just maximizing its benefit, right? It's just really difficult to eat the amount of meat that you would need to eat to get the amount of creatine that would maximally benefit you from a performance perspective. So you take more, right? But it's, are you gonna stop eating meat after five years, right? Like it just, I don't, I'm just not really sure where that information is coming from. That being said, if somebody has some research that is showing otherwise, I'm happy to look at it. You know what I mean? Like I'm not like closed off to the idea that one day we could find like, again, just like trying to keep more of a scientific outlook on this. Like if somebody, ha like I'm not trying to say this is like closed book, but as far as supplements go, creatine's about as closed book as it gets. Um, but shit, man, if you have some research you want me to look at and comment on, like fire it my way, I'll take a peek. Next question, I'm having trouble getting enough sleep. Will six hours negatively impact my gains? Yes. You said negatively, so that that is more of a binary question of yes or no. It will, you'll get better gains with eight hours than six hours, that's a fact. Will it negatively impact your gains to the point where you can't make gains? I highly, highly doubt it. Are there some people that just generally don't need, like is there, are there genetic differences in how much sleep we need for our body to be able to accomplish certain tasks uh, at a certain rate or with a certain amount of proficiency? Yes. So for somebody, it might affect them more and somebody else, it might affect them less. And so I, is this worse for gains than getting eight or nine hours? Totally yes. Is it so much worse that you can't make gains? Absolutely not. Will this differ between people? Absolutely yes. Um, yeah, anything else I wanna say on that? Um, yeah, I mean, the how to get better sleep, something we talk about another time, but but I think that that's the most important thing to understand is like more sleep is almost, you know, I'd say very, like generally speaking, always gonna be better. And so less sleep is always gonna be worse. How much worse? Up for debate. And I think differences between individuals probably varies quite a bit. Um, also depends on how much sleep we're talking about. Almost also depends on like a lot of the other recovery variables, but just looking at this one variable, those are my takes. Um, next question, for fat loss, carbs and fats ratio doesn't matter. Is it the same for bulk? Can one be more if the other is not too low? So basically this person is asking, hey, you know, I understand that for fat loss, calories and protein are gonna make up like say 99% of my body composition changes and the ratio of carbs to fats doesn't really make much of a difference. Now that is a fact that I would, that I, I'm not just like, that's not a question, that's a fact. Um, calories and protein equated, carbon fat ratios really don't matter. Now the one caveat I would put, and I think this is where this person's coming from, the one caveat I would put with that is so long as you don't go mega low on either of those chronically. So carbon fat ratios don't matter as long as both of them are in a relatively moderate range, which most people will do without tracking them. I have a whole podcast on calories and protein. I'll try and put it in the description. Um, but at the end of the day, like, it's not that calories and uh, carbs and fats don't matter at all and you don't need any carbs, who cares? You don't need any fat, who cares? It's that if you don't track either of them and you just track your calories and protein, you will very naturally, just by your hedonic food choices, eat enough carbs and fats. Um, as long as you don't go mega low in fat or mega low in carb, which by the way, would be representative of a ketogenic diet, um, you can expect, in my opinion, the same exact results. Like um, I would say going keto over the long term, probably not, again, over the long term, probably suboptimal for muscle growth, but we have research in people who do the ketogenic diet and they make gains, right? Calories and protein equated, but they're in a ketogenic diet, they're very low in carbohydrates. They still make significant muscle gains, not as good as the people who have had 
or let's say eating more carbohydrates. I'm not actually sure how, how that would play out over the very long term. Uh, pr probably you could, I, I bet it'd be less of a difference than we would think. So to answer this question, he's basically asking, uh, does this, is this the same for in a bulk? Can one of those macros, carbs or fats be uh, higher as long as it doesn't come at the cost of the other one going too low? And the answer is absolutely yes. Yes is yes, 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 yes. 100% um, yes. Um, you know, not to beat this horse because I think that there's, a, I think I have a podcast on this that goes in depth uh, or at least many podcasts where I've addressed this to some degree. Um, people crack me up with like, they're like, you don't need as many carbohydrates. I think carbs are great. I'm not like, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not anti-carb. I love carbs. Carbs are amazing. But like this idea that you need to go mega high carb for your hypertrophy approach, like people will say two things. One, carbs are good for performance. Then they will say two, carbs are less likely to be turned into body fat, right? And I don't wanna like, um, fuck, I need to address these two things now. Number one, carbs are good for performance. That's true. Hyper, like regular hypertrophy training, like moderate volume hypertrophy training is not a very glycolytic exercise. Like you don't need 500 grams of carbs to make sure that you're like performing and recovering well. Like I just chuckle because like the research that we have on like how much does a hypertrophy session deplete muscle glycogen stores? I'm not gonna put a number on it because I don't recall, but it's extremely low. Like, or, or it's extremely less than you'd suspect. It's not like you're leaving your like moderate volume hypertrophy session with like a totally depleted, you know, liver glycogen, totally depleted muscle glycogen. That's just not the case. You're like, oh, I need to slam down fucking 200 grams after my workout so I can replenish my glycogen stores. It's not really what's happening. Like you're not really depleting glycogen stores that much. Moderate volume hypertrophy training can be done with moderate carbohydrate intake. It does not need you like hyper-focusing on getting maximum carbohydrate intake. So there's that. Uh, and then there's the, the people who will say, well, you know, dietary fat is more readily stored as body fat. Basically what they'll be referencing is if you take two groups, calories and protein equated, one group is high, let's say they're both in a surplus because you must be in a surplus to gain body fat. Neither group would gain any body fat unless they're in a calorie surplus. You take two groups, both of them, let's say they're in a 500 calorie surplus. One is on a ketogenic diet, which I just mean very high fat. I'm not picking on keto, I just mean very high fat. The other one is low fat, very high carbohydrate we see that the very high fat group might gain a little bit more body fat um, because just the, like, I'm gonna, I, I don't hang my hat on this terminology here, but the molecular construct of dietary fat is more readily uh, uh, turned into body fat, stored as body fat. This is more like molecular, it's, it's more similar. Um, and to turn carbohydrates, into body fat requires a process called de novo lipogenesis, which is uh, an inefficient process. So we see that people who go mega high carb and they go in a surplus, we see that they gain maybe slightly less body fat. I would put a bunch of asterisks on that study because it's comparing to very much extremes, unlikely an extreme that you would live if you just tracked calories and protein. Like it's unlikely that you would live out the, those differences. You wouldn't in my opinion. Um, I also would be curious as to the methods in which those studies are calculating this difference. Um, I, I really don't think either of those reasons, like if someone's like, hey, I heard I have to go mega high carb because it's better for performance for hypertrophy. I'm not so sure I would want somebody to do that unless they really preferred it. Like that to me is not a good enough reason to like drastically change your eating patterns to eat more carbohydrates. And if someone's like, hey, I gotta go mega high carbohydrate because you know I've heard that that's gonna make me gain less body fat. Again, that's not a good enough reason, in my opinion, to drastically change your eating patterns. I would say, yeah, you maybe don't go keto and be in a surplus. Like for me, that reasoning takes that one option of like trying to bulk while in like while eating a mega high fat carbohydrate, uh, mega high fat ketogenic diet. To me, that's a good enough reason to take that off the table. But everything else in more of moderate carbohydrate to fat ratios, like to me, that is just like both of those reasons are just like things that people say to make it sound cool, but don't actually mean a whole lot in my opinion. Um, alrighty, we're on 39 minutes. Maybe we'll go to the hour. What time is this World Cup game on at nine o'clock? Um, all right, let's see. Next question. Um, tips how to eat meals out without tracking and not go off goal. Let's be real. This is a discussion that requires a longer chat. Um, I guess per this podcast, I've been going kind of long with these. Um, one of the best ways 
I think you can begin to get better at this process is to focus more on the meal composition, the composition of your meals. And so a lot of times people track calories and what they forget to do is like learn how to build a balanced nutritious meal and which I think you can do simultaneously and has been something I've changed about my coaching over the years is like, I actually wanna teach people a lot of non-tracking habits alongside tracking calories, let's say. Like how to build a nutritious meal, what foods are high in fiber, what sort of, what should your plate look like more or less most of the time? Are there like per meal, um, can we have per meal goals? Can we have like a per meal fiber and protein goal so that we're making meals that are balanced and satiating so that having mostly meals that look like this, nutritiously speaking, uh, probably bodes well for long-term health, cal caloric, uh, like managing total calorie intake, portion control, stuff like that. So usually this is somebody who's lent very heavily on calorie counting, but not actually focused on like how to build nutritious meals that keep me full, that are high in fiber. And so I would take a step back from your tracking a little bit and I might practice a week of not tracking at all and just focused on exposing myself to a different set of principles by which I create meals. Like a lot of like, I know people are like, oh, I get a protein, I know I, I should get a vegetable on here, but they kind of forego thinking about that a bit more deeply in lieu of focusing more on the calories and let's say the protein of their total daily intake. Whereas I might want you to take it down to like individual meals and be like, hey, every meal's gotta have a protein and a plant and I need that to take up two thirds of the plate you know, stuff like that, or I need to get, you know, seven grams of fiber per meal, or I need to get 30 grams of protein per meal, um, so that you can start to kind of think about this more from a meal composition standpoint. What sort of foods keep me satiated? What sort of foods make me feel good? How do I build a nutritious, balanced plate of food? How can I do that when I'm out, when it's a smorgasbord or it's a buffet, or I'm going out to dinner at a restaurant? Like, you, you, you need to have other skills other than tracking. And so work on those skills, and practice only having those skills. I'm, I mean, I'm on a tirade to, of sorts lately with my clients of making them practice not tracking. Whether that's like when life throws you an opportunity to not track, whether it's a night out or it's a long weekend or it's a vacation, I want you to, even if you're in a deficit, to consider practicing what skills you got when you take away meticulously tracking, putting stuff on a food scale, scanning barcodes. Like what other things have you learned alongside this process? And even if it doesn't go perfectly, you still learn from that experience. So that would be my challenge to you would be try and expose yourself to more experiences where you're not tracking. Like, like this problem you have, you're like, oh, I'm not really great at this. Two pronged approach. One is to kind of uh, either work with somebody or do your own research on like what might be a good way to be structuring these meals so that I feel more satiated outside of just looking at calories. Is there a plate composition template that might be helpful? And the second would be like actively seek out or, or, or you know, as the opportunities present themselves to not track, try and practice that even if you're nervous in doing so. I'd say, I'd go so far, especially if you're nervous. Challenge yourself, like think of it as a challenge. Like what, what, what can I do? What sort of principles can I fall back on? What do I know? Uh, honestly, not to go too deep on this, but I've had such an amazing experience with clients with doing this lately. Most people are better than they think at doing this. Let's say this being surviving without tracking. They're better than they think, but they don't know how to quantify what that means. They don't know how to decide that they were in fact doing well with this. Um, and it's mostly just, and it comes from an anxiety of not being sure, but it's like that kid who's like, uh, you know, when the teacher's handing back the test and they're like, oh, I didn't study. I, I'm so nervous about how I did it. So nervous about how I did And like in their own head, they're experiencing all this, this anxiety. And then they get a test back and it's like a 95. And so like, they, they don't actually know there's like a disconnect there. And I think building that connection of experiencing, like how many times is that kid gonna have to get a test back that says 95 before they realize that they actually do have a good handle on this. And the more you go through that, hopefully the more confidence you can build. So something I definitely think you should work with a, a, coach, a coach with, um, but you could pursue that on your own, I think, absolutely. Next question. Um, well, sorry, there's an extension of this here. Uh, like, is it okay if I'm on track during the week and eat out on the weekends without tracking pizza, et cetera, during gaining? Okay, separate context here. Um, what matters during gaining is if you're gaining roughly 1% of your body weight per month. 
So the, some people will be like, hey, can I take a, a day off tracking? It's like, I don't know, can you? Like, what's your goal? Is your goal to maintain your weight? Then the answer would be, can you take a day off tracking? And then over the long term, are you able to maintain your weight with that strategy? Um, when I have, I'm thinking of a client right now who's gaining, who's, uh, I just, I think of like when I go into his his data tracker, like sometimes we're missing days and all this. And, and I just don't give a shit because what I care most, it's not that I don't give a shit, we talk about it. But what I mean is that I'm, I care more of like, hey, this strategy where you're loosely tracking, is it yielding the goal that we're after? Which is roughly 1%, give or take a bit, of your body weight gain per month. And if it is yielding that, then that's great. Then the strategy is working, you know, because working means accomplishing X goal. If your goal was to gain and you are tracking very loosely and you're not tracking most days and you're just kind of going willy-nilly uh, and it, and you're not gaining any weight, well, then that strategy is not working, right? And so we have to like define what is working or not and what level of flexibility can I have and still make that goal happen, right? Next question, if calories are exceeded on one day during the bulk, should next day be at maintenance and will it cause fat? Just really simply, you gotta look at this stuff over a longer time scale. Like just calories over on average over the long term will decide your weight gain on average over the long term. And so this discussion of like, if I go over calories on one day, should I go under calories on another day? It's like, may, maybe it depends on your headspace, to be honest. I don't think most people need to be micromanaging this. Most people just have a normal day your next day. And over the long term, whatever you were over on one day just kind of washes out over the long term. Um, especially in a gaining phase. Like, again, I, I don't I don't mean to be so reductionist about it, but like the answer to your question is like, if you just go to having a normal day the next day, which is like your normal surplus calories, at the end of the month, what happened? Did you gain roughly 1% of your body weight? Then you did fine. Then you can know in the future that like, maybe it's not such a big deal if I go over on one day. But if you gained two and a half percent of your body weight this month, you might be like, hmm, maybe those days over, I'm going a little bit too over and this is turning a little bit more into like a dirty bulk where I'm just like um, kind of going a bit above what is required for optimal muscle gain. And maybe I need to tighten the reins a little bit or the screws or whatever con, you know, fucking analogy you wanna go with. So the, the answer to your question is, I don't know what you should do. Like, uh, is it working if you just have a normal surplus day? Like most people who are asking this question need to zoom the F out. Zoom out a little bit. What's happening over the last three months? How much weight have you gained doing X strategy, which might be going to maintenance the next day? Like if you're a thousand calories over your, your maintenance, the next day, if you go to, if you just go back to your normal surplus of like two to 300 calories, and that happens X amount of times over the month, what happened over that month in terms of weight gain? And are you okay with that? Cool. Next question. Um, what kind of dog is Callie? I need me a Callie. Um, she's a Havanese Shih Tzu baby angel mix. Um, and I just laugh about Callie. I don't know why I want to tell this story, but like when we went to go get Callie, um, we were at a pet store and um, we were we had, we were kind of torn between a couple of dogs. Obviously, they're all very cute, especially as puppies. And the day we went to like kind of make a final decision, uh, one of the dogs it was like a marshmallow or something. I uh, I don't even know what breed that is technically, but um, he was crazy. He was just so energetic. I mean, he was off the wagon and I've never had pets before. So that like kind of turned me off. I was like, this thing is insane. He's going banana sauce. And, and so I just remember like, I was like, Hmm, I was like that, like just kind of, I was kind of like raised my eyebrows. Like, Hmm, like this, this dog's, I, I thought that this was like, this temperament was like representative of his temperament that he would have for his lifetime. Of course, you know, stupid kind of deduction there. Um, I didn't know any better at the time though. And so then when we, you know, we were, we had Callie and we were like playing with Callie or whatever, she was just dead asleep. And she was cute and snuggly and like walked up to us and snuggled. And I'm like, oh my God, Jenna, we need this one. This one's very docile. It's very like, I wasn't, I didn't know how I would be as a dog parent. So I didn't know that I'd love doing so much with Callie. Like you guys see a training, whether we go hiking or whatever. Like I wasn't sure what, I didn't know any of that then. So I was like, you know, this dog not being a pain in my ass was like number one. And so this dog, you know, Callie was super quiet. She came and she snuggled. She was all cute. She rolled over on her back. She would let her rub her belly. And I was like, oh my God, we need to get this dog. This is the one. And so I remember that day, like putting a down payment on her. And uh, I remember that week I was working and Jenna was not working this week. Um, 
I think I was working in the gym this week and Jenna was not working, whether it was a couple of days, she had a couple of days off or something. And so we couldn't take Callie home that day because she needed to finish like her deworming or whatever, but we could go visit her. And, and so Jenna would go every day and would go visit her. And I remember the first day after we put the, like we bought her, we paid for her, whatever. Um, the first day Jenna texted me, she goes, she is an, uh, a fucking, she sent me a video actually, she is a lunatic. So like obviously what had happened was like somebody had came in and like played with Callie before or she was just like exhausted in that like one hour span of time that we came in. And it just was funny that like, like of course, like of course that like that was not representative of like her actual demeanor. Um, and she is a bit, not a, not a lunatic, but I love her demeanor, but I just laugh because like, uh, like of course that was a stupid thing to think that just because she was like, relaxed when we were there that that like for her lifetime was gonna be her demeanor. I mean, she, we love her, she's crazy girl. Um, she's such a good personality, she's so energetic, playful. And so I just like, I just chuckle at that moment. I don't know, I told that story, but oh, love Callie. She's three years old now, she's my little bug. If you wanna follow along with our little training experiments, uh, check out my stories. Next, um, this will probably be my last one. Let me see, yeah, there's a lot more. Maybe I can uh, answer a couple on Instagram here. After hearing your podcast with Eric Trexler, I'm wondering how you handle the token client who has weight to lose, but reports lower calories. Do you spend some time at maintenance slash reverse or try a cut? And so I'll start off by saying, if you haven't listened to my reverse dieting podcast with Eric, Dr. Eric Trexler, I would go listen to that. We go through a lot of the research and we talk about these sorts of circumstances, right? Like, like these circumstances where you have a client who's not losing weight, but reporting very low calorie intake. And then a lot of people will be like, well, that's because your metabolism is damaged and we have to do a reverse diet. And we talk about what is or is not happening throughout that process. And I, and I will say that even though that podcast goes on to debunk a lot of what is happening physiologically in terms of like what people think is happening in reverse dieting in terms of like repairing your metabolism, basically that's just complete bullshit. But practically speaking, the process of gradually increasing your calorie target intake uh, for clients who are, you believe under reporting, but you don't want to let, let's say call them, like you don't want to, it's not productive for you to be like, you're lying, that you're eating more than this. Part of a process that can be practically helpful is to increase that person's target to a target that they can actually adhere to. Like it's very clear in the research, what what is something that improves people's actual adherence to their calories? Eating more calories. And so one of the things, or, or, or let me rephrase, increasing the target calorie intake. So if somebody's trying to eat 1,200 and they're not sustaining it and they're actually eating 1,800, guess what will make them adhere better to the goal? By changing the goal to something higher. And so one thing you can do is this process of like, hey, let's, and I, and I don't wanna make it seem like you're doing something shady because what you are not doing is fixing their metabolism. What you are not doing is boosting their metabolism. What you are not doing is healing their metabolism. What you are doing is giving them a goal that they can actually adhere to and hoping that in doing so, they will improve the strategies and, and their, their, their overall adherence in terms of like not missing so many bites and licks and tastes and full-blown days of tracking, not going massively over their calories and feeling like a failure because what you've done is you've increased their calorie targets so that it's easier to hit that target so that they don't go over their target, even if they were always eating the same amount anyway. Um, if what I just said doesn't make sense, please go listen to the podcast. I think it's one of the most important podcasts that I've done. But what I will tell you it is that even if physiologically reverse dieting isn't doing what people think it's doing in terms of like healing your metabolism or like fixing something that's broken or gonna let you cut on more calories next time, like all of that's mostly from a physiological perspective, bullshit. That doesn't mean that the act of increasing a client's target calorie intake can't have a positive outcome, you know, along the way and, and at the end. And so I think two things to kind of wrap this question up is one is I would have a genuine discussion with them that it's unlikely or, or that there's probably calories we're missing somewhere and that I would 100% work on that with them. So whether that's getting pictures of their food and seeing how they're tracking it or just some immersion, immersing yourself in that process so you can try and find some of the calories that they're missing. You're not calling them a liar, but I think that there's, there's um, man, we gotta be a little bit more transparent with people. I'm not saying come out and be like, you're fucking lying, you're lying to me, you're lying to yourself, you're bullshitting yourself. But to be honest, like there's something to be said about saying, hey, like this isn't adding up and 
Let's be a detective. Let's be curious about why that's happening. Let's try and figure out where we might be missing some calories just to just to take that option off the the, the list of things that might be happening. Um, because let's be real, we we underreport across the board. Even people like nutritionists who do this for a living underreport by like twenty percent. Um, and so I think that there's an element of like trying to f- help your client find those missing calories. And then you can also do something like increasing their targets because by increasing their targets, chances are they'll actually hit their targets, be less likely to go over, less likely to feel guilty, less likely to have that guilt lead to a binge episode. And practically speaking, the process of increasing somebody's targets can have a happy ending, even if um, even if it's not something like you're not fixing something physiologically under the hood. You are you are increasing adherence. You're increasing feeling of self-efficacy and confidence in their ability to achieve that goal, which can have you know knock-on effects to their behaviors. And so I do think that there's room for this strategy as long as you're understanding what is and isn't happening. All right, we got time for one more. We're gonna get of course. If I can said I would do 45 minutes, we're on 55 minutes. We'll do a nice little um, a nice little hour-long sesh here. Next question, what goals fit best with your hypertrophies program? I'm coming from CrossFit and I'm worried about the sudden decrease in calories burned. Um, make no mistake about it. One hypertrophy session and one CrossFit session do, you know, generally, because CrossFit could be a bunch of different things, but assuming it's like a normal structured CrossFit hour long workout, you will burn more calories in that workout. That's a fact. You will burn more, but that's a binary. It doesn't tell us by how much and doesn't tell us if that amount manifests into something meaningful over the long term because that's what matters right you're not you know you know you're not just worried about like oh i burned 100 more calories it's like does that difference in calories actually make a difference i would say it does not i would i would at least start with the assumption that it won't make a difference let me tell you why it won't one is you you're not burning that many more calories than you as you think maybe you're burning 400 calories 500 calories in your crossfit workout and maybe it's like 200 250 calories in your hypertrophy workout now that might sound like a 250 calorie difference. That might sound like a lot. But over the course of your day, the whole day, there is a little bit of a compensatory effect. And that's why exercise calories burned during like specific exercise isn't as big of a modifier or as isn't as big of a contributor to our total calorie intake as we think, because our body does some compensatory balancing. If you, you know, whatever, if we, we we've seen in some research where people do very hard, intense workout early in the morning they burn less calories afterwards throughout the day. It's their body doing some compensation. Does that mean that it nets out to zero extra calories burned? No, it does not. If you, the, you know, the group that does a very high intense, higher calorie burn exercise, even if they burn less calories later, they still net out to more calories than a group that does less intense, less calories burned in their, in their training session. But it is not the difference between the exercises, right? It's not the difference between the workouts that made up the net difference across the day. It's a lot less than that, actually. It's quite a bit less. And that's why things like NEAT uh, need to be discussed more, even things just like general activity. I know that NEAT technically is subconscious movement, but if we can lump in like walking, um, I actually think that you will, like, I actually think that this, that the potential difference in calories burned, let's say you're doing CrossFit four times a week, ah, you go to doing hypertrophy four times a week. I actually think nothing will change, nothing. If everything else stays the same, you're still getting the same amount of steps, same amount of sleep, I actually think you will see, it's not like you're gonna start gaining weight because all of a sudden you're burning way less calories. I think nothing will change about your body weight. Like I don't think that calorie balance wise, anything will change. That is my firm belief. If you're going from six days of hyper, of CrossFit training and 15,000 steps to like three days of hypertrophy training and like 7,000 steps, okay, yeah, I think that that's gonna be meaningful difference. But I think a lot of people like micromanage this change in energy expenditure, assuming it's gonna manifest in changes on the scale. And in my experience, in the vast majority of cases, it does not. Um, And what's cool is, well, your first question was like, what sort of goals fit best for hypertrophy or for the hypertrophies program? It's a goal. The goal of the program is to get really great hypertrophy, which is muscle growth, aesthetic change, and strength, by the way, of course we're getting stronger, without breaking the bank in terms of time. Um, and so what goals fit best for the hypertrophic program? Somebody who wants to build muscle and strength in, in, a, ti- in a time efficient manner with really like uh, optimal programming. I think, I think the program is very good. I think it's from a, from a like getting really good gains from an exercise selection standpoint, I think it does all of that, checks all those boxes. So 
If you wanna change your physique and see muscle growth, see change in your physique, get stronger, uh, not have a lot of joint pain, and I'm, and I'm kind of throwing a small jab at CrossFit just because it's probably a bit more joint friendly than CrossFit, um, that's the person who should do hypertrophies. If you really like CrossFit and uh, you really enjoy some of the cardiometabolic work um, and you really enjoy Olympic lifting, uh, you enjoy the Metcons, you like some of the gymnastics, then then good, then you should do CrossFit totally. But if you're like, hey, I wanna, you know, physique-wise look my most muscular, let's say, or build more muscle or get just stronger, and you will get more muscle and stronger in CrossFit, you will do that too, just at a lower rate because there's less of an emphasis on that. Um, that's who I think this program or just general hypertrophy training is for. Um, but yeah, like you're, you say, I'm worried about the sudden decrease in calories burned. If you are talking about calories burned across the day, I think you will see zero difference, frankly. Um, I think there will be actually no difference in, no meaningful difference. Um, and maybe it's like, hey, I'm burning 50 calories, 100 calories less per day on average across the week. Maybe that's you getting, you know, an extra, extra 2,000 steps a day and all of a sudden it's equated and you can get more out of your training like in terms of what you're actually looking for, which might be hypertrophy. Um, I actually don't think there would be a difference though. You burn more calories in a CrossFit workout than a hypertrophy workout. Does that difference manifest itself across the day and across the week as like a, if I go from one to the other, I'm gonna see body weight change? I do not think so. That is my genuine opinion. If all else stays equal, I think it will all stay equal. Cool, I'm gonna get to some of these questions on Instagram. There's um, there's a lot more of them, but I appreciate you guys listening. Q&A episodes are super fun. Thank you for asking a question and I'll see you guys in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever wanna get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks guys, have a good one.